Um, my name is Audrey and I'm a grateful recovered compulsive overeater from Ireland and I will be your host for today's study. The co-hosts are Kathy M and Nancy J. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or the co-host by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker Harlan will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer session which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you can please make sure to make sure your microphone is on mute at all times during the study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen at any point. We will post the recordings, as I mentioned, and I will now turn you over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for your service, and thank you to everybody who makes this meeting possible. It's far from just me. It's, it's all the people who make this Zoom room go and all the people who handle the money and stuff like that too. And I'm so happy to be here. And it is March the 26th, 2022. And we're all together here again. And it's just wonderful. And we have been studying Bill's story. And today we're going to also study Bill's story. We're going to still be in that chapter. Uh, we may finish, we may not. We'll see how far we get. But we have been asking ourselves a question or two. And today we're going to add a question that most sponsors do not give their sponsees, that most people do not ask. And I think this is such a key question that I want to highlight it for a little later on in the session. But we have been studying Bill's story, and we're in step number one, essentially, but we have been studying the history of step two. We have been seeing how step two came into the program through a group of people called the Oxford Groupers. And the Oxford Groupers were not concerned with alcoholism at all. They were concerned with reinfusing enthusiasm into first century Christianity. And they were Christians and they wanted to infuse this enthusiasm because Frank Buckman, who was the founder of the Oxford Group Movement, believed that Christians were losing this enthusiasm for Christ. Enthusiasm, there's a good word. It comes from two Greek words, enthechos, which means from God. And enthechos is what he was trying to infuse. And Bill has all the potential in the world. He's highly intelligent. He's highly, highly able to tackle just about any task that he has in front of him. But there was no way that he could remove his alcoholism. There was no way that he could treat his alcoholism by himself because a broken brain cannot fix a broken brain. Now, we see that Bill Wilson has been hospitalized two times at the town's hospital. In another book called Pass It On, which is an official approved book for AA, it'll tell us that Bill will be hospitalized four times. But we will not deal with that right now because in the context of the big book, he will be hospitalized three times. But during his first hospitalization, he comes out and stays sober a year. 
and we see the progression of the disease. The disease has two characteristics and three traits. The two characteristics of this disease are the physical allergy and the twist of the mind that drive us irresistibly into the liquor or the food in search of relief from the intenable pain of not eating or not drinking. And then the allergy takes over, making it impossible for us to stop once we have started. Now we know the problem from Silkworth. We get the problem from Silkworth, but up to this point in life, in time on earth, there is no remedy for this situation. Now the Oxford group people did not concern themselves with alcoholism at all. They didn't know the problem and they didn't really care about the problem. Bill Wilson will get a, a visit from Ebby and they're right behind me here. I hope you can see them. They're kind of looking down on me to make sure I don't tell you anything that's wrong today. And they are going to make sure that we do everything correctly if they can. But we're going to get a visit. Bill's going to, not we, Bill is going to get a visit from Ebby Thatcher, Edwin Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby is a drunk. Ebby is an alcoholic. And Ebby is known to Bill Wilson because they grew up together in Vermont because the Thatchers were from Albany, New York, but they had a summer home in Vermont. And at, when Bill was 10 years old, he attended Burr and Burton Academy. At that time, it was called Burr and Burton Seminary. And Bill Wilson met Ebby Thatcher because he was on the baseball team, which we already talked about. And Ebby was on the baseball team and they became very, very good friends. And Ebby Thatcher knew Lois when she was a little kid and Bill Wilson and Ebby knew each other. And the Hazards, the Roland Hazards family, remember we talked about that last week. If you don't know who we're talking about, I would strongly suggest re-listening or listening to the podcast from last week, because last week's podcast has the entire history of step two, but this week we're just going to kind of skim the surface. Well, anyway, um, Ebby was about to be remanded to the insane asylum in Brattleboro, New York, and he was the he was about to be sent there for his alcoholic behavior. And two men, Sebra Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard, stepped before the judge in September of 1934. And they petitioned Sebra Graves Sr. Is it odd or is it God? Sebra Graves Sr. to remand Ebby to their care. They would take him down to the Oxford Group in New York and see if they could sober him up. And Ebby will be sober two months. He will be sober two months. So this is November of 34. He is sober in the Oxford Group and he is told that he must go give testimony. What is giving testimony? That means you have to go tell someone what God did for you and try to bring them into the Oxford Group movement. And Ebby is not drinking. He shows up at Bill Wilson's house in November of 1934, and he starts to talk to Bill, who's drunk, about God and about his spiritual situation, and he's not drunk, and that gets Bill's attention. 
And on page 12, the entire history of the world will change. Everything about this world, the way it spins on its axis, the way that it the way that the sun comes up and the sun goes down will forever be changed in the lives of not only the alcoholics of that day, but the alcoholics, the drug addicts, the relationship addicts, the sex addicts, the, the compulsive overeaters, the alanons, anybody who is addicted to anything, their lives will change. When on page 12, it will say, here's Bill Wilson speaking. It says, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. What did Bill see? He saw for the first time in his life, he saw recovery. He had never seen recovery before. He had seen people not drinking. And remember, there is a vast difference between an alcoholic who's not drinking and an alcoholic in recovery. An alcoholic just not drinking is a dry drunk and they are miserable. They're miserable. They're angry and they're scared and they're negative. And it's just, it's a very, very harsh way to live. But for the very first time in Bill Wilson's life, what did he see? He saw an alcoholic not drinking. And for the first time in Bill's life, he is going to see an alcoholic who's not drinking and he's happy in his release. One time in his life, he sees this and it will change the world. It says, I saw, I saw recovery. I felt, what did he feel? He felt hope. What did he believe? It says, I believed. What did he believe for the very first time in his life? After the struggles that he had listening to Epi talk, he believed that this God-based or spirituality-based situation would help him. And at that moment in time, in 1934, even though Bill was drunk, the world will never be the same, thank God, because Bill Wilson will not just accept that he knew the problem that he got from Silkworth and the solution that he got through Ebby, but he will take it to the world. And he will take it to the world in such a way that it will be accepted in the form of this magical book. And that through this book, millions of unborn addicts and millions of unborn people will benefit from what they did back in the 1930s. The world, thank God, will never be the same. I saw, I felt, I believed. Now, we have seen in the first part of Bill's story, the first eight pages, that his disease is progressive. We have seen that his disease is permanent. Now we're going to see the progression of Bill's recovery through his willingness to believe that a power greater than himself 
could restore him to sanity. And remember, we talked about that. Sanity has a much higher ceiling than sobriety. Notice it doesn't say in step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. Notice it doesn't say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. It says, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And that means a unilateral sanity, a sanity that pervades over a person's life. And as we practice these principles, what are the principles? The principles are the steps in all of our affairs. That means that areas of my life that were putrid, areas of my life that were ruined by this disease are now healing. And I see areas of my life today that are much improved from where they were when I came in and they have nothing to do with food. They have nothing to do with the consumption of food. I am more sane in my friend relationships. I am more sane in my business. I am more sane in my daily life than I have ever been. And so this becomes a unilateral. And as we practice the principles in all of our affairs, the recovery starts to improve everything. So let's remember that the reason that it does not say came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to either sobriety or abstinence or whatever, it's because those have much lower ceilings. And as they have lower ceilings, it becomes much better for us to be restored to sanity. Now, Bill is still drinking. Bill is drunk. He's with Ebby. Now let's continue. We're on page 12. And on page 12, the very last paragraph of that page, we're going to pick it up for today. The real significance, I'll give you a second to get there. Give you the real significance of my experience. And we're going to talk about that for just a minute here. But I want to give you a second to get to page 12 if you have your book. Okay, remember that this is now the third time that Bill is mentioning the Winchester Cathedral experience. He mentions it on page one. He mentions it on page 10. He mentions it on page 12. What was the significance of Bill's experience at Winchester Cathedral in England? What he saw there blew him away. And what did he see? He saw the grave of a man named Fetcher. Ebby's last name is Thatcher. This man's name was Fetcher. He died in the 1600s. And it says very clearly on his tombstone, here lies a Hampshire grenadier. That means a guy that's from Hampshire, England, who was a soldier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. And the pot has nothing to do with um, marijuana. The pot has to do with the way that they drank beer in England at that time. They drank it in pint pots and they drank it in quart pots. And the way that they drank it was they were always standing up. It was considered extremely rude to drink while sitting. Only the most degenerate of alcoholics would drink while sitting down. And so today, bar stools are raised as an homage to that. 
and we they had what's in what's in the bar they had excuse me in the saloon or the inn they had a bar that the fellas could lean against and bill is looking at this and remembering that he was admonished by his mother that drinking broke up the marriage of his mother and father. When Bill was 10 years old, Bill's, Bill's mother and father, I almost said Bill's wife, Bill's mother and father broke up over Bill's father's drunken behaviors. Bill's paternal grandparents, their relationship was ravaged by Bill's grandfather's alcoholism. And Bill has been warned not to drink. Well, it was a little too late by the time he got to England because he started drinking in Plattsburgh before shipping out. And he was very, very into the hooch at that time. Now, what he sees is the grave of a man who drank himself to death. And he doesn't want that for himself. He doesn't want that. And he's looking at this grave and it will so affect him that when he, years later, 17 years later, when he writes the big book, 17 years, not from the time AA started, but from the time that he sees this, he will remember this and it will have such a profound effect on him that he will mention it three times in Bill's story. Very, very important is this trip to England, Winchester Cathedral for Bill Wilson. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. And he's thinking about this God thing. And it's all coming back to him now. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me. And he came. And that's what I have to be willing to do today. And I see it in every area of my life. I see that when I walk to God, he runs to me. I see that when I believe in God and I put my trust in God, that he's there for me. I'm still alive. I was over 700 pounds. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. I was 500 pounds as a sophomore in college. I was 600 pounds by the time I graduated college. I went on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. Try that one on for size. My mother died when I was 22. My father died when I was 24. They left me nothing but alone. How I survived is an absolute miracle because I did everything I could do to die at the hands of this disease and doctors and people and neighbors and friends and the parents of friends would tell me you're going to die. And what I couldn't tell them was, I hope it's today because I saw no life for me. I saw no life in the food. I saw no life out of the food. And so for me, death at that time would have been a welcome relief from the pain, the loneliness, the deprivation, the financial woes, all the various things that I was dealing with. I did not know how to live in this world and I didn't want to live in this world. I knew that there would never be a happy ending for me until one day when I accepted what Bill accepted, that there is a God and it's not me. And I started doing things that I did not yet believe in. 
When I started working these steps, I had to stop waiting for willingness. Willingness, bleh, willingness is highly overrated. I had to stop waiting for freaking willingness. Willingness is garbage for me. I had to start taking action after action after action that I did not yet believe in. And when I started taking that action, willingness came upon me. So it was not willingness, then action. For me, in my life, it was action after action after action, and then the willingness would flood over me like a tide, like water, like being in the middle of Lake Michigan. It was never get the willingness, now take the action. That never, ever, ever worked for me. So that's important. For a moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me and he came, but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. And so it had been ever since how blind I had been. And in every era of, of time, there are worldly clamors, the Holocaust, what's going on right now as we're sitting here in America or wherever you are, not everybody here is from America, wherever it is you're sitting, there are dreadful, horrible, nightmarish things going on. And we're all aware of what's going on. And yet here we sit because we have to recover no matter what. And yes, it's really not fair that my folks died when I was that young. My mother was mentally ill. I, I lost my mother when I was a child, when I was five, six years old. My mother had three distinct personalities. My mother died when I was 22, but my mother was severely mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities, screaming, raving, lunatic, two-year-old, and a pretty together person. You never knew what you were gonna get. My arm is killing me today. You never knew what you were gonna get or how long it was gonna last. And you could be sitting there talking to her, having the most fantastic conversation, and you don't know she's gonna breathe in air and she's gonna become a two-year-old. And then she's gonna breathe in air and she's going to become a screaming, raving lunatic. My father was 54 years old when I was born. He wasn't one generation in front of me, guys. He was two generations in front of me. My father was older than many of the grandparents of the friends that I had as a child. And he was, trust me, he was not a guy I could play baseball with or go ride bikes with or do any. The only activities we really did together were eating and watching television. That was basically it. And I never had the kind of security in my life that I see a lot of people that they do have. So I had worldly clamors too. But there's a vast difference between being angry at God and not believing that there's a God. And sometimes when I'm sponsoring, I see people that say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. And then they tell me how angry they are at God. And I say, wait a minute, if this was, if this was a court case, you can't be angry at something that doesn't exist. 
You can't be angry at something that you don't believe exists. So either you believe, you don't believe, or you're angry, but let's get to the bottom of this. And 99 times out of 100, what happens is they believe that there's a power greater than themselves. They're just angry that life didn't go their way. Maybe a parent died when they were very, very young. Maybe some things happened where there was extreme misfortune. More often than not, they were abused. More often than not, they were raped. More often than not, they were sexually or violently abused. And so they have a very severe anger about this stuff. And it's very hard for most of us to get past this. I'm not minimizing these things. These are things that are part of most of the human condition that you see in the world. I'm not saying everybody was sexually molested. I'm not saying that. But everybody has trauma. No matter how, when you look, there's 146 of us right now. You look at these little Hollywood squares. Every one of the people here came here because of trauma. They didn't come here because things went well for them. They didn't come here because, well, they won the lottery and everything was fantastic. And, oh, my God, the, 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 the person they were dating was just a dream come true. And they woke up one day and said, you know what? I'm going to go join Overeaters Anonymous. It doesn't work like that. So don't compare and despair. Don't look at another person's little picture and say, oh, if I had it as good as them. Trust me, we all have our own hell and we all come here because things just did not go well for us. Nobody comes here on a roll. Nobody comes here because things went well for them. We come here because we are looking for an answer and we have searched for that answer in all the wrong places. And maybe, just maybe, if your friend was right or your, the person that sent you here was right, maybe there's an answer here. Hopefully we have one for you. What we have does work. What we have is extremely effective in the treatment of addiction. And it is something that I think anybody Anybody that works these 12 steps is going to find that their life is going to vastly improve. Let's take a look at the rest of it, because now we're going to come to a point where Lois is going to um, go with Bill to some Oxford group meetings. But Bill is still drinking. He is still drinking. This is now December 11th, 1934. Bill has been attending Oxford group meetings from late November to the middle of December. He is going to come in. It is six o'clock at night. He is drunk. Dr. Silkworth is attending a patient. And Dr. Silkworth has this patient propped up in bed. And he's listening to the man's heartbeat through a stethoscope. Out of the corner of his eye, he's going to see a familiar silhouette. He's going to see the figure that he has seen before, a drunk Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson will enter that hospital on the 11th of December. It will be paid for by Leonard Strong, who we will talk much more about later on. Leonard Strong is Dorothy Wilson's husband, and he is Bill's brother-in-law, and Bill Wilson could always count on Leonard for support. When everybody else abandoned Bill, Leonard Strong, Dr. Leonard Strong, always stood by him. 
and he's going to be, Bill is going to be, not Leonard Strong, Bill is going to be waving a bottle of gin. And he is going to say to Dr. Silkworth, one of the things that drunks do is they yell. They don't talk because one of the things that alcohol, uh, that drunkenness affects is their hearing. So they're always yelling. They're always you know, yelling at the top of their lungs. And he says, I have found something. And he's waving the bottle of gin. And Dr. Silkworth will say, it appears you have, my boy. Why don't you get upstairs, take your clothes off, get into bed, get in a gown, get into bed, and I'll be up directly. That'll be 11th of December, 1934. Bill will wake up sober on the 12th of December. He will wake up sober on the 13th of December. And after two days of sobriety, Bill Wilson in the town's hospital will begin his trek of working the steps for the rest of his life. Let's take a look at this paragraph on page 13. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. The treatment seemed wise or I showed signs of delirium tremens. That's the shaking that they do. Looks like an Airedale trying to crap out a peach pit. Now in this paragraph, we are gonna see Bill working what we know today are steps. So let's take a look. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him. Does that language make sense to you? If you know the third step prayer, that language is very familiar to you. To do with me as he would, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. When he capitalizes words out of context, he's talking about God. I admitted for the first time that of myself, I was nothing, that without him, I was lost. So we see Bill right there in the town's hospital on the 14th of December. He has now worked the first three steps. Now, how do you work the first three steps? You don't. They are conclusions of the mind. The first three steps are two conclusions, one decision. There's no action that we take for step one other than putting the food down. That's the action of step one. Put the food down. Now, I know in the questions and the answers, you're going to say to me, Harlan, you just told me I'm powerless. How am I going to put the food down? You are powerless, but you are not helpless. You gut it out. You do what you need to do. You make the volume in your head of the recovery louder than the volume of the food by taking action. What action? The action of reaching out to others. The action of using the tools at your disposal. Podcasts, meetings phone calls, literature, you have means at your disposal to up the volume of the recovery and reduce the volume of the food by taking action. I ruthlessly faced my sins in the Oxford group. They faced their sins. That's what we would call today step number four. Step four, ruthlessly facing your sins. And if you really think about what we're doing in step four, we are listing the resentments, fears, and sexual harms done others. But we are also looking at how our defects of character, our sins, have not only putrefied us, but they have affected other people. And 
and this is an old expression that has nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous, but if you do not heal your wounds, you will bleed on people who did not cut you. If you do not heal your wounds, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. You will hurt them and they never did anything to you. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend, God, take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. So we have in this paragraph worked steps one, two, three, four, six, and seven. One, two, three, four, six, and seven. Let's see where we go from there. My schoolmate visited me. Now let's stop right there. Ebby is going to come into the uh, room. And in preparation for today, I was going to bring mine and tuck it under my arm here, and I didn't do it. So I'm going to use another book here. And Ebby has tucked under his arm a copy of a book called William James, The Variety of Religious Experience. One of the books that was very influential in the writing of the big book is William James, the varieties of religious experience. This is the reason that you have the stories in the back of the book is because of William James. He wrote in 1901, he was in Scotland. He was in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he did a series of lectures there. He was a psychologist. And there were other psychologists there and they were doing a seminar. And in 1902, James published a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's a very hard book to read. I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's hard until you get to a certain point and then it becomes easier. What it is, see if this makes sense to you. See if you understand, not understand. See if you resonate with this. It's a book of stories about guys who all of a sudden something really bad happened to them and then they found God. So it was what you're like, what happened and what you're like now. I hope that makes sense to you because that's exactly what our stories in the big book are trying to illustrate. What were you like, what happened and what are you like now as the result of finding God? Okay, my schoolmate visited me, Ebby. And I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Step five, we made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Step eight, I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Step nine, never was I to be critical of them. Step 10, I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. So right now in the second paragraph, Bill has worked five eight, nine, and 10. So, so far he has worked in the town's hospital with Ebby one through 10. Did he take a month a step? Did he take a week a step? Now, obviously he's got to work on his ninth step as he goes through his life. Did you see him doing any written assignments except for four and eight? There are none mentioned in the book. Did you see him reading any other books? No. Did you see him wasting time with a lot of other Narishkite? No. He got to it. He worked them quickly. He worked them, he worked them beautifully. He's got the rest of his life to deepen his understanding of things. 
He needs to get through as quickly as possible. Why? Because we're going to, well, we're going to learn why in just a minute. I'm not going to answer that right now. We'll answer that in just a few minutes. Okay. Now the next paragraph is a reflection of page 87. This is step 11. And this is pure Oxford group. The next paragraph is pure Oxford group. Forget about William James. Forget about Sermon on the Mount. Forget about um, uh, the uh, common sense of drinking by uh, Peabody. The only thing that this paragraph is going to reflect is pure Oxford group. This is step 11. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. This is step 11. This is the guts of 11. This is also reflected on page 87. We are not to sit here and pray, God, give me a girl, make her look like this, this, and this. Give me some money. Give me a Lamborghini. Give me this. Give me that. No, that is not prayer. That is begging and that is petitioning. That is not prayer. That is not prayer. Prayer is, how can I serve you? You are the master of the universe. You created the sun and the stars and the moon. You created me in your own image. How can I best serve you? And if I work for you, I know that I'll be taken care of, but I want to do your bidding. I, I want to go forth from here, absent of my defects of character, so I can best serve you. That's prayer, not this other stuff. Give me this, give me that. Let me win the lottery. I promise I'll give some money to the synagogue. I'll give some money to little kids. I'll give money to a charity that helps little puppies and let me win the lottery. That's not prayer. Page 13, the bottom, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living, which answered all my problems. Remember, we talked about sanity, and that goes to everything instead of just a program that just made you sober or made you, you know, eat right. Um, Abstinence does not treat the disease. Abstinence does not treat these other things, but God does. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility. Willingness, honesty, and humility. Could that be where the how program gets its name? I think so. H-O-W? Wow, that Fred Schneider he was a sharp cookie. Fred was the one, if you don't know, Fred started how. He was a school teacher in Brooklyn, New York. And he believed that people needed a curriculum to learn the program. And he didn't know what to call the curriculum. So he called it H-O-W, how. And that's so that's how we work the program. And where you see these people answering all the questions and all this other, these other writing assignments and that, most of that came from Fred Schneider. That Fred Schneider, and then there was a group in California called the Westminster Group. And the Westminster Group in California, they had a lot of 
questions and written assignments and all kinds of stuff that they did with their people. I'm not judging it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not judging it. I'm just giving you a little OA history and I'm giving you a little history of how we became the organization we are today. And in order to understand that, you have to really understand where we came from. And this is what we come from. Okay, to establish it on the top of 14, to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. What was the price? It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things, not some things, all things to the father of light who presides over us all. And many of us, and we're going to be talking about this much more extensively in chapter four, many of us have pockets of agnosticism. I have to work on my pocket of agnosticism every day. What is a pocket of agnosticism? What is an agnostic? An agnostic is someone different from an atheist and different from a believer. A believer believes that there is a God. An atheist believes that there is no God. And an agnostic just doesn't have enough information. They're not quite sure one way or the other. They have these pockets of doubt. And the agnostic is someone who struggles with that. And what happens is we have to turn in all things. And that, let me, you take my food, but I'm going to handle my relationships. You take my food, but I'm going to handle the business. You take, no, no, that, that, that doesn't work. That's, that's, that's the quick boat to Palookaville. That's the quick boat to Twinkie land. That's the quick boat to Twinkie land. The road to recovery is God. You are the master of the universe. You are the principal. I am your agent. You are the father. I am the child. You take control of my life. I will do your work. You straighten out every aspect of my life and we'll go from there. The bottom line is we're going to talk a lot more about these pockets of agnosticism when we get to chapter four, but I wanted to introduce them because they're so important for us to know what Bill is talking about. And that is these areas that he didn't want God to have until he let go absolutely. These things were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, came to believe, the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. Confidence in who? Confidence in himself? No. Confidence in the stock market? No. Confidence that the Yankees suck and the Cubs are great? No, even though that's true. If the Yankees were playing the Taliban, I'd be for the Taliban. But the bottom line is, is that he has confidence in the power of God. He has confidence in the power of God. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. And on the 15th of December, 1934, Bill Wilson will have a spiritual experience 
in the town's hospital. This will change the world forever. He will have a spiritual experience. A spiritual experience means it's sudden and profound. So if you're going to ask during Q&A, what's the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? A spiritual experience is sudden and profound. It's right now. This awareness of God came to Bill very suddenly. He said throughout his life, he felt the room fill with a light that he had never seen before. And that the spirit of this God filled him in a way that had, that had filled him up from that moment until the present moment. A sudden spiritual awakening. Um, excuse me, a sudden spiritual experience. The spiritual awakening is slow and it takes place over time. A spiritual experience is fast. A spiritual awakening is slow. For a moment, I was alarmed and called my friend, the doctor. He's in the hospital. He calls Silkworth. He says to Silkworth, what the hell's going on with me? Am I crazy? To ask if I were still sane, he listened in wonder as I talked. Now, it, Dr. Silkworth is also going to change the world. He could have said to Bill, you're having a hallucination. He could have said to Bill, you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. He could have said to Bill, you're about three French fries short of a happy meal. But he didn't do that. He said to Bill Wilson, finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you. I don't understand. But you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who've had such experiences. He knows they are real. Now, let's take a look at some facts that are before us. Bill Wilson is a selfish son of a bitch. He is an alcoholic. He wants what he wants. He wants it now, or he wants everybody dead, just like me. I want what I want. I want that. I want her. I want them. I want this. I want that. I don't like that person. I don't like that person. I want their houses burned to the ground. No, it's not quite that bad. But the bottom line is Bill Wilson is a selfish son of a bitch who never gave a damn about anybody. He has had his spiritual experience in the town's hospital. Let's see where we go from there. Let's see what's different about Bill Wilson now. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. For the first time in Bill Wilson's adult life, he is thinking about how to help the next alcoholic. Now, this is so critical that this is, this is so much the reason that we want to work the steps quickly. It says on page 89 of the big book of AA, nothing ensures immunity from drinking so much as intensive work with other alcoholics. We need to get you sponsoring. And a lot of people, they're afraid to sponsor. They want to do it perfectly. They want results. They want to make sure that everybody will like them. 
They don't know how to make it so that they, they, they are going to get the results that they want. We are not in the results business. Overwhelmingly, most of the people that I have sponsored in my life are elbow deep in ice cream boxes. But I'm not. So from sponsoring, I have a 100% recovery rate. My recovery is 100%. And yours can be too. That doesn't mean that every person I sponsored is in the deep bliss of recovery. That is not the case. And I don't have the perfect thing to say to everybody. Yeah, I've picked up a few things in 43 years. I picked up a few things here and there that I know now that I didn't know whatever. But the bottom line is we need to get everybody out there through the steps as quickly as we can and get you sponsoring because nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. Now, the next paragraph is going to reinforce this. But before we go to the next paragraph, I want to give you the question that I told you I was going to give you when we started this at the top of the hour. The question that you most likely get from your sponsor when you go over Bill's story is, do you think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do you eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. Now let's add a third question. Do you take the actions that Bill takes? And that's where a lot of us fall down. Do you take the action of getting through the steps quickly and sponsoring other people? Even if you have three days, you can't sponsor if you're here three days. You can make an outreach call. You can care. You can give a damn and give somebody a call. I know somebody right now that's, on the, that's been on the struggle bus for a long time, on and off the struggle bus. And the reason they're not on the struggle bus today, they only have like four or five days of abstinence right now. They're involving themselves in calling people that are also on the struggle bus. And they put together some really beautiful abstinence of late. And I know that this person is going to skyrocket to the moon in recovery because they keep taking the actions Bill took. So yes, do you think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do you eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. Do you do the things Bill did? Yes. I sponsor. I make and take outreach calls. I take a lot of calls every single day. Sometimes I reach for that phone and I say, for the love of Mike, isn't there anybody else in the freaking state of Arizona that can take a 10-step call for, the, for God's sakes? But I take that call and I say, how can I help you? And I go from there. It's very, very important. Let's take a look at this next paragraph, not just as an instruction, but as a warning. And this paragraph is packed with information that will either make you or break you. Let's take a look at this all important paragraph. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. What are demonstrating the principles? Working the steps, demonstrating the steps in all of my affairs. Particularly was it imperative. What does imperative mean? It means important beyond all else important beyond all else. 
What is important beyond all else? Oh, to work with others as he had worked with me. So working with other people is one of the, is not one of, it's the most important thing I can do. Working with other alcoholics is the key to the whole thing. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. Faith without works was dead comes from the New Testament book of James. There are four books that were most influential in the writing of the big book. The book of James, New Testament. The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. The Sermon on the Mount, Emmett Fox. And the Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Those four books had tremendous influence on the writing of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those four books were very, very key to the formation of everything that we have here today. Very, very important. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. Now, listen, this next line is key. This is a permanent, progressive, and fatal disease. You don't have to die from it. You can die with it. But if you don't listen to this next sentence, you will not continue to do more and more work because you have, whether you're eating or not, your disease is continuing to get worse and you have to take more and more action. I don't like to hear that. You get less and less food. I have to take more and more action. Screw this. No, I'm kidding. But the bottom line is that is what's expected. It says here, faith without works is dead. How appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. This paragraph is a warning. This paragraph is an instruction. This paragraph is not to be ignored. This paragraph is very much to be taught from you to your sponsees. This paragraph at the bottom of 14, top of 15 says that no matter what is going on in your life, I don't care how many kids you have. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care what your obligations, you need to be of service to the next compulsive overeater seven days a week, 365 days a year, without exception. There are no days off. Your disease doesn't take days off. Wouldn't it be nice if you never compulsively overate on a Sunday or on vacation? But that's not the case, is it? So we have to work at this program 365. <sighs> This paragraph that we just read is so much the key to everything that combats the progressive nature of this disease. And I have relapsed in this program by resting on my laurels. I have relapsed in this program by settling into a certain degree of service. And when I settled into that certain degree of service, the disease caught me from behind and I was catapulted back into the food because I did not increase my activity level. If you're gonna do this program successfully, you are gonna eat less and do more as time goes on. My wife and I abandon ourselves with enthusiasm 
to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. Now this line should be highlighted in your book, in your brain, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. We're not looking for results. We're not looking for perfect. Work with another alcoholic. Are all of them going to get well? No, but you will. You will. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. We commenced to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us, of which it is really a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. I always wanted to go somewhere to have purpose in my life. And now because of OA, I do. I have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. Feuds and bitternesses of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one Western city and its environs, this is Akron, there are 1,000 of us in our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. That would be Bill's uh, Bill Cousins, not Bill's cousin, but Bill Cousins. He was a he was a gambler. He was a lawyer. He stole from the Wilsons and he eventually killed himself in their home. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity, but just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Bill W. died, co-founder of AA, died January 24th, 1971. And it says here in 2017, AA is composed of approximately 118,305 groups. So we have finished Bill's story, which is all part of step one, but we also see the history of step two, which is very important. How did this step, how did step two come into the program? And that is covered on last week's podcast of this. You can access that by going to scottsdalebigbook.com. That's scottsdalebigbook.com. And that is... Um, in that podcast, we have the history 
of step two. And before I turn it over, before I turn it over, I just want to remind you guys of something. First of all, uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate that. I definitely do. And um, if you asked a question um, last week, please hang back. 